0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: I drove home from work one night, and I was back in Toronto now working at Walmart. I got my office job. I'm working in human resources. I'm a leadership development manager. I drove home from work. We just bought the house, and she says to me, I'm out. This isn't working. I don't love you, and I've met someone else. And that was a huge psychological trap for me because I was in shock. But also, I told you, I grew up with such a little... It was like, and now I'm a failure at this, and now I'm not attractive. I'm not deserving of love. I'm not... You know, the confidence and all these traumas were just really kind of inside of me, kind of bubbling to the surface. At the same time, over this kind of tumultuous path post-Harvard, Chris attempted suicide once, and it was a terrible experience. I just visited him. We were talking on the phone three, four times a week. He called me up from the hospital and said, I'm in recovery. I have attempted suicide. I'd love you to come visit me, and I need you to help me because I need to get on the right medications. I need to see the right psychiatrist. Can you get a bit more involved in my health? And I did. But then, as I was going through this process of the divorce and the selling my house, He then attempted to take his life a second time, and this time was successful.
0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who have taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose. Or their mission. And in doing so, they have been able to positively impact the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. And today I have a very, very special guest for you. He's someone who I originally recruited to come and speak at one of my shine events in New York City back in 2017, I believe. And he came and he delivered one of the funniest, most engaging, and most inspirational talks that we ever had in those five years that I hosted The Shine. His name is Neil Pasrika. Neil is based in Toronto, and I didn't know a whole lot about his backstory at the time that I actually met him. But as I mentioned before, one of the benefits of doing a podcast such as this is that you have an opportunity to do a deeper dive into someone's superhero origin story. And I have to say Neil's background did not disappoint I also want to point out that doing all this research is a double-edged sword because on one hand, you're like, man, I don't really have time to do all this deep diving into someone's life. But on the other hand, you find yourself marveling at all of the obstacles that someone had to overcome in order to discover their purpose. And it really never gets old. And it's a great reminder that in many ways, all of the obstacles that we face today are the gateway to our path and our purpose and so neil grew up in an immigrant family he had a top-tier education which led to a great job and a as he describes it a cushy life he got married in 2006 and then within the span of a few weeks his wife left him for another guy and as if that wasn't devastating enough neil's best friend took his life and Neil began experiencing this deep sense of loneliness, chronic sleeplessness. He had debilitating anxiety. He lost a ton of weight. He was going to therapy twice a week and he knew that he had to do something different. And it ironically, again, from, on the surface, you know, he had the great job, six figure salary. It looked like he was a successful person, but his life no longer felt aligned with who he truly was. And so he took this, what I would call a hop of faith into starting a blog where he would just make a list of these little things that would brighten up his day-to-day life. Things like popping bubble wrap or wearing underwear fresh out of the dryer or hitting a bunch of green lights in a row when you're driving, things like that. And the plan was to do this for a thousand days in order to uplift his spirit. Anyway, cut to a few years later, Neil's little blog went viral. And then it won the best blog in the world award. And then it eventually became a New York Times best-selling book called The Book of Awesome, which I think sold like a million or two million copies. And then this unexpected success changed the course of Neil's life. He ended up graduating himself from his nine to five job. He started giving talks around the world, mainly on the themes of gratitude, happiness, resilience, trust, things like that. And Neil is now the author of nine books and journals. He hosts an Apple best of award winning podcast called three books. He actually invited me to be on the podcast, which I accepted, of course. And in the process, I started listening to some of his episodes. And now Neil's podcast, Three Books, is one of my top three favorite podcasts. He's had guests on like Brene Brown, David Sedaris, Malcolm Gladwell, Quentin Tarantino, and yours truly. <laughs> and as you can probably tell, I'm just a huge fan. Neil was generous enough to come onto my podcast and he shared some of the stories that I know he's talked about a lot. But he shared them as if he told them for the first time. And I really think you're going to love this episode. I feel that so many people can relate to Neil's life story of doing all the right things on paper, having the good job, having the six-figure salary, being married, etc., and then things just not feeling aligned. And I know everyone can relate to the fear that comes with taking a leap of faith into something that does feel more aligned. And so I'm excited for you to hear all of the nuggets of wisdom that Neil shares throughout this conversation. So without further ado, let's get into it. I want to introduce you to my friend, author, speaker, and my newest favorite podcast host, Mr. Neil Pasrika. Neil, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast, man. Ironically, I was just on your podcast. It was a couple weeks ago. Yeah, we get we get to meet twice in a few weeks. And then I guess the nature of podcasting is
1: with time and space being two independent variables, these conversations could float or fly
0: around different places for a long time. Yeah, man. And it's such a cool concept. Three books, three books. So I want to talk to you later on about your your fascination with books. But first, I want to get into the backstory, your superhero origin story, (laughs) so to speak. So you grew up in Toronto. Parents are immigrants. Dad is a physics teacher. What was the vibe like in your house growing up, you and your sister? In in terms of like, what were some of the ideologies and the philosophies that your parents used to say to you all when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, my mom was born in Nairobi, Kenya, and my dad was born in Amritsar, India, and they had an arranged marriage in England. And the story is that. My dad went on a date with my mom and performed the hamburger test, and uh, (laughs) the test was simply to see if she ate the hamburger. And if she ate the hamburger, he confirmed that she wasn't a vegetarian, and he married her. I'm telling you, like, their second date was the wedding. Their second date was the wedding two weeks later. And my mom's family was actually fleeing East Africa at the time because with Idi Amin and What was happening in other parts of East Africa, you know, a lot of the Indian people were trying to get out of Dodge. And after the India-Pakistan partition, my mom's family, who originally hailed from Lahore, Pakistan, actually lost all their wealth, which was in the form of like jewelry and real estate. So my mom went from a very wealthy family to like a pretty poor family. Suddenly, my dad was always from a poor family. His mom died at a very young age. He grew up in a one-bedroom home with sleeping in the same room with four brothers and sisters. And so suddenly, with the caste system, they were equivalent. You know, they, they, they never would have met. Thankfully for me, in my existence, they did. The hamburger test was performed. The marriage happened. And they emigrated. You said Toronto. And yeah, it's Toronto. But more specifically, it was Oshawa, Ontario. And I make that distinction because it's very clearly the suburbs. A blue collar suburb that's a GM town was entirely white, was entirely like, you know, yeah, there was diversity, but it was, you know, 12 kinds of white people, right? Like it was like Italian and (laughs) Polish and Ukrainian and, you know, German and that was the diversity. So we grew up very clearly the only brown people around, certainly the only brown kids at my elementary school. And the vibe from my parents, which you asked about, honestly, there's many things I could take you down a path right now. But one of the biggest ones I loved was my mom had a philosophy through a lot of trauma with the philosophy of adding the word yet, Y-E-T, just the word dot, 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 yet, to anything that was happening in her life. I don't know this man yet. I've never lived in Canada yet i would see her my whole life like like growing up i was like what are you doing you're going to the ballroom dancing classes at the german club she's like i don't ballroom dance yet even the hamburger test they will go back to that she didn't eat meat for the first 22 years of her life so it was like she was in her mid-20s when she you know was having this burger with this guy so she was new to meat even but it's just i didn't eat meat yet I'm not advocating that people who grew up with a vegetarian background suddenly started to eat, but the concept served her well because, in addition to fleeing a country, being the youngest of eight kids, having her dad die at a very young age, and having sudden onset mental illness as she grew older, the philosophy retained a sense of agency and allowed her to navigate a wholly new cultural landscape. And for me, growing up, it has I think served me well because I look at life now through the lens of. I can choose what I want to do, and if I'm doing something uncomfortable or if I'm doing something I don't know what I'm doing, as I often am, add a dot, dot, dot yet to the philosophy, and it keeps the idea that I can't, I won't, or I haven't open just a crack and gives me permission to be able to do it.
0: Did your dad have that job lined up when you guys moved to Oshawa, or was he just kind of taking a leap of faith, and we'll see what happens when we get to Canada? He got very
1: lucky. He got his undergrad in science and his master's in, you mentioned physics. He's got a master's in nuclear physics from University of New Delhi in 1966. He jokes like that's kind of what you learn, you know, in 12th grade today, right? But at the time, it was pretty advanced. And the reason it was interesting was because Canada wanted to start splitting up high school science class, which they had in the 60s, into Chemistry, biology, and physics. And in order to do that, they needed physics teachers, but they didn't have any because they never taught physics to anyone before. <laughs> so they brought all the physics teachers in. So my dad had applied for immigration to five countries. He looked at some list that existed in the 60s of like the best places to live. And it was like not that different than the list you see get printed today, but it was like, you know, three Scandinavian countries plus Canada and the United States and his acceptance to Canada just arrived first. I mean, literally, he ended up going to the first letter he got back to let him in. They wanted high school physics teachers. They made him then do an education degree here for a year. So he worked as a ticket ripper at a local public pool for a year while doing his education degree at the University of Toronto to then get a job that he knew he was going to get, which was the high school physics job. He was the first ever high school physics teacher in the, you could call it the county or the region that we were in.
0: He was also probably the first nuclear physicist to rip tickets at a local swimming
1: pool. Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, exactly. I mean, it's funny though, (laughs) because he does joke that the stuff he learned then just happened to have been, you know, luck time, place, a little bit further along. You know, than, right. than where things were in North America at the time. But he certainly is. a fit. My dad looks like an Indian Einstein all the way to like the, the big frizzy hair, thick glasses mm-hmm. and long sideburns that he's had for 50 years. He's 77 <laughs> today as I talk to you. And he's never, you know, when 90210 came out, my dad was just on trend. It was like Jason Priestley, Luke Perry, and my dad had long sideburns. It was it was really funny, but he just never got rid of the long sideburns for, for 50 years.
0: I grew up in the deep South in America, in the U.S. Obviously, the racism and all that was a big conversation. What was that conversation like in your house growing up, being brown in a community of 12 different kinds of white people? <laughs> was that something that you got teased about or... Not really, or how how did that all play out?
1: You know, today I would look back at it and I would say it was the kind of racism that was invisible to me at the time. I think it Mm -hmm. definitely existed. But I grew up for the most part through elementary and high school telling people that I experienced no racism because there was nothing overt there was no name-calling. I wasn't made to sit at the back of any bus. Certainly the people I grew up with were very warm and kind and friendly. And there was a spirit of multiculturalism that did exist because in Canada, most people, it was some huge percentage, were one generation away from living in another country. Okay, It wasn't, didn't have the same longevity. So while I, I didn't experience much racism, having said that today, when I look back, and I'm like, hmm, you know, I never got a date to any dance ever. You know, there's a number of things where you look back and you're like, there probably was some subtle and subconscious stuff happening that I just was not perceptive enough to notice as it as it was happening. With the more informed conversation we're having today, I've actually been learning a lot about my own experience, to be honest with you, over the last couple of years, almost feeling ashamed that I'm like, wow, I was just... Perhaps my extremely low self-confidence, I mean, extremely, like in the gutter, I had extremely low self-confidence all the way up to my 30s. Perhaps some of that was a function of never, ever feeling like I was ever in any kind of room where I could see anyone that looked like me. I was always smaller. At any school photo, I was always the tiniest kid in the corner of the front row I had thick glasses when before any other kids had glasses. I never made any sports teams. Yeah, maybe I'm just a loser. <laughs> maybe something was going on. Personal journeys continuing today, but I never experienced any as it was happening. Looking back, probably what's created some of the internal fight and struggle I still have inside myself.
0: Hey there, really quickly. You get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. What was your family's idea of success when you were coming up, when you were in your developmental years?
1: Yeah, so East Indian immigrant parents, success was defined with one word, my friend. Doctor. (laughs) All paths lead to med school. Mm -hmm. And when my parents would get together with other family members, the conversation was, what's the marks? What's the marks in math? What's the marks in chemistry? What's the which med school is he going to apply to? What kind of specialty will we do? I mean, this is when I was like 10 years old, 15 years old, you know. Oh, so-and-so is becoming a cardiologist. Oh, so-and-so is becoming a, you know, a, a gastrointestinologist, or whatever. So it was it was doctor. And the reason it was doctor is because in the culture I grew up in, that was considered the most fail-safe, conservative way to make a lot of money and therefore give you the big house, the ideally two kids, a boy and a girl. I mean, it was just in the water. And so Even for me, look, today I'm pretty far removed from being a doctor, but it was really hard for me, even in my last years of high school, to start to like drop biology class in favor of taking like writing. You know, like that was a hard sell (laughs) to my parents Mm -hmm. at the time. And they were very open minded, and I was pretty independent. And I went to business school. I still went to like a top tier business school. But that was a pretty big swerve away from the model of success, which was definitely med school and get a big house and make a lot of money.
0: Was there a lot of pushback from your parents when you chose to not take that path and go to business school instead?
1: Like, Was there drama
0: or is it just like, oh, we're a little disappointed, but we're going to, you know, you know best. Well, there was a lot of stuff
1: happening and this is good to talk about. I haven't talked about this much, but I remember reading the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah, in my senior year of high school, by Robert Kiyosaki, and then sitting down, with my parents and saying, "I'm not going to university. I've decided to invest in commercial real estate." <laughs> 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 and you know, it was like a absolute, absolutely, no. it was a hard, hard no. <laughs> it was a, it was a hard no. And also, just to ladle in here, you know, in the culture I grew up in, you also listen to your parents. Like when they said hard no. I have no possible freedom to decide anything. And today I will, ask, I get questions like this all the time. My parents won't let me do this. My parents will let me do that. My parents won't let me and my boyfriend live together. I get questions like this all the time. And I can relate to these questions because I very much grew up in a similar philosophy But what I say to people today is you got to figure out ways to, A, test everything first. You can't live with your boyfriend, go on a vacation. (laughs) And let's remember that our parents are alive for about half our lives. Okay. You, you got one life to live and it's yours. So we'll work within the cultures that we're brought up with. But, you know, I do advocate a spirit of trying to carve your own path. Now, the idea of not going to university or college was simply not on the table, and so I did go. And then coming out of Queen's University, which is a school in Kingston, Ontario, Canada, that had a business school, I got the safe job. It was happened to be a marketing job at Procter and Gamble, selling CoverGirl and Max Factor makeup. If you ever want to know about the lengthening, separating, and volumizing properties of mascara, I could tell you. But you were a model that in Cincinnati, somebody. or is that you probably was that in already Canada? know all that? Yeah, I. <laughs> I worked for Procter & Gamble, Canada. So it was based in Toronto. And then we'd have to go down to Cincinnati for a brand manager 101 and that type of training and stuff. But no, and it just so happened that the company that I worked for, the brand I worked for, which was CoverGirl, was an acquisition. They bought a company that was based in Hunt Valley, Maryland, that owned uh, CoverGirl and Nivea. Was it Nivea or Olay? Face cream. So I went, I actually traveled to Maryland a lot more when I traveled to Cincinnati. And did they pay for your MBA?
0: My parents? No, no, no. Procter & Gamble.
1: No, it was interesting. I'm happy to talk about this. I haven't talked about it before. Baked into the spirit of the East Indian culture saying, thou shalt go to university was also, in my case, and we will pay for it. We want you to go so badly that we will pay for it, which is very, very, very fortuitous and very lucky. Because when you go to Undergrad in Canada, I think maybe this is most schools, they ask you for your parents' past three years of income tax returns in order to assess you for financial need. But what I learned, and this is a very obvious piece of insight now, but I didn't realize it at the time, is when you go to do your master's, they ask you for your last three years of financial statements, <laughs> not your parents. Now you're a master's. So why is that important? Well, because I had made no money. I had a year of undergrad at Queens, plus a year of Procter Gamble, which, by the way, didn't go well. I quit just before I was fired there, and we could talk about that if you want. <laughs> and then I ran a restaurant that also made no money. So I had like a zero, 50 grand, zero kind of past three years. So because I was applying to Harvard and they're sitting on a huge golden nest egg, they're like, congratulations, you're so poor, we're going to cover your tuition. And so I actually went on like a financial need package, a scholarship called the John H. MacArthur Fellowship, which was created for Canadians below a certain income threshold to go... To Harvard. And when I went there, there were 40 Canadians in my class of 900. I went to Harvard Business School from 2005 to 2007. And I found out that the majority of them received the same bursary because I don't think it's this overt, but Harvard's philosophy is we really want to be in your will. We really, we, the reason there's such largesse in their endowments is because they're playing a really long end game, which is at the very, very end of your life. We're just hoping to just remember your old pals at Harvard for one or 2% of your estate, you know? And so they treat you very kindly. when you get a When you get the welcome package from the Canadian school, congratulations, you got into the University of Toronto. It's like a letter, man. When you get the package from Harvard, it's like a box. There's a scarf in there. There's a mug. There's a, (laughs) they're selling it to you from the beginning. And you go down there to check it out. And you're like, oh my God, it's pastoral fields and 30 foot tall, like carved wooden doors. And the professors are dynamic and they're engaging. And it's like, oh my God, I was wooed. And I went there. And so from my age 25 to age 27, I pursued a second business degree, which by the way, I did. Because I didn't know what I was doing. I had failed at the office job at Procter & Gamble. I thought it was going to be a PowerPoint job. Man, it was an Excel job, okay? It was, I picked the wrong Microsoft Office <laughs> suite package and <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work. I was crunching Excel spreadsheets till 10 o'clock at night. I was failing every which way on that job. You mentioned
0: you had low self-esteem, right? Very much. you almost got fired. Procter & Gamble, you had this failed restaurant. What made you think you could go to Harvard? What made you think Harvard was going to accept you in their okay, MBA program? Okay, I absolutely did not think
1: I was going to get accepted. I honestly <laughs> applied kind of on a dare, to be honest with you. I was like, okay. I, I applied to just a couple local schools and then I threw a dart at Harvard. And you know why I got accepted? Technically nobody knows because the admissions process is a black box. They don't actually tell you how they decide, but I believe it's because my background was so unusual. It was just a bunch of hopscotch boxes, right? Like, what the hell is this guy doing? He he ran a restaurant this year and then he did this weird marketing job and he's from a different cultural background and I didn't even tell you, but my big thing at, at campus at undergrad was I was the editor of the campus comedy newspaper. So I did like comedy writing internships in New York in between. So I got that thing on the resume. I think I got in because, man, they're just looking for some people that aren't consultants. You know what I mean? I think they're looking to mix it up a bit there. They don't want everybody to be from
0: private equity. So what was your archetype in that circle, in your class at Harvard? Were you the class clown? Were you the quirky guy? Yeah. who always noticed weird things? <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: and I'm still in a 14-person fantasy football league, and that's still my role. I still write like a weekly funny write-up every week in that league that, you know, get everyone laughing. I thought I was going to get kicked out of that school the whole time. I was stressed. I was nervous. I was staying up till midnight reading cases to prepare. I was writing down. Because the way it works at HBS or Harvard Business School is every class is taught in a semicircle. With every seat being able to sort of see and face each other in something called the case method, taught typically in the Socratic format. So the professor comes in, and if it's a finance class, like they might say, let's just say we're doing a finance case on a lumber company, say, and and my professor in finance is an incredibly wise man named Andre Parole, who I deeply love. And I love the experience, I will say, on top of the stress. He would say, like, What is lumber? And you just like look around. Like he might like, kick on you to answer, and you'd be like, "Why do people make that?" And you'd be like, "Okay, you try to answer this." And he's like, "What does the business look like?" You know, he, he just asks these like tiny little questions, and he might ask ten questions over ninety minutes, and then you get from there to like doing a discounted cash flow, on whether this company should expand to it. It's really a profound method of teaching. That takes incredible work and discipline and thought to figure out how to like orient a room where some people are coming, you know, Andre would say, some of them are bankers and some of them are poets. You know, you've got a room in the class where people are coming from wholly different backgrounds and they're expected to learn together and they
0: do. It's pretty magical. And so my role- At the the end, you can like walk into a Starbucks and you can look around and see, oh, that's Lumber—that's cardboard. That's a commodity. This is this. This is that. That's how much this labor costs. Blah blah blah. And kind of put it all together in your head. Is that the idea behind business school? It
1: absolutely is. And I—I I got out of a four-year undergrad business degree at Queens. I will say, looking back, I knew how to do accounting. I knew the four Ps of marketing, but I don't think I knew business. But I got out of that Harvard business school experience, and I—I I felt like I really understood business and. It's not unrelated to get into that program. They are looking for life and work experiences too, right? So you're not coming from high school. People are coming from, I worked at an oil and gas company in Nigeria. I was part of a publishing conglomerate in the Philippines. Like People have these experiences that you're constantly learning from in the room. And obviously the thing you take away more than anything else, like anywhere, is the relationships. You keep connected, if you're lucky. With these people that then springboard out back around the globe, and to this day, some of my most valued friendships and most valuable connections are, you know, people that are just living in completely different worlds than than mine, and that's what makes it, you know, special. How did you meet Chris? I met him at Harvard Business School. So. I said there was 900 people coming in the class, right? They break you up into 10 sections of 90 people each. You spend the entire first year. I'm talking an entire year, my friend, with the same 90 people. You're with them in the morning. You're with them at lunch. You're with them in the afternoon. You're with them and studying. You're with them on the Friday night social. You go to the dance with them. The 90 people that first year are tethered together in a way that I'd never experienced before. So Chris, Kim, and I were two of the 90 people. We connected for a few reasons. One was that he also felt a little bit out of place there. He did a Harvard undergrad, but he also was a Newton, Massachusetts high school teacher. Okay. He was coming from the poet side of the background, you know, and we also both live pretty far off campus. So, you know, the majority of people live on campus. I was living with an old friend. From Toronto, who was off campus, who was not going to Harvard Business School, he was a campus. What do they call him? Like in Canada, we call them Dons, but they might call it Residence Advisor. He was like working at a at an undergrad residence, you know, holding heads above toilets, editing resumes, that whole thing. And so he would drive to school past where I lived, and so we had a commute together every day to and from campus. So he's a really, really, really special person in my life.
0: Was he in your wedding?
1: No, it's funny because I've had a few weddings.
0: (laughs) The first one, the 2006 wedding.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I got married in the summer after my first year. And at that point, nobody from Harvard had come because we were getting married back in Canada. Looking back, I wish my friends from there were at that wedding, especially Chris. But it was its own thing. And the reason listeners can hear me stumbling at this point in the conversation is because (laughs) everything we're talking about Exited my life, so I was dating a woman, the first person who liked me back <laughs> in, my, in my life before I went down to Harvard, and after a few months of being together, a few months like, I got down on one knee and I proposed. She said yes, and then I was whisked off to Boston, and our engagement was spent from a distance, planning the wedding that we were going to have the next summer, okay. I then became great friends with Chris. And what happened after Harvard was a couple things. So I moved back to Toronto and Canada after a 10,000 mile road trip with Chris around the whole state, whole U.S. It was wonderful. One of my fondest memories. And I settled back into my marriage, into my life there. Unfortunately, although my wife and I had now been together a couple of years, it turns out we were just getting to know each other then. And it turns out that it wasn't going great. and. I was all in. I was of the East Indian mentality. There's no such thing as divorce in the culture that I grew up. And you just never hear that word. No one gets divorced. It's a black mark. It's not the sign of an enlightened culture as sort of, uh, you know, the rogue economist and books like that would argue today that it's the sign of actually healthy culture that people feel free to not be entombed into relationships that may be riddled with abuse or financial dependency, et cetera, et cetera. No, it was not something you did. And I drove home from work one night and I was back in Toronto I'm now working at Walmart. I got my office job. I'm working in human resources. I'm a leadership development manager. I drove home from work. We just bought the house. And she says to me, I'm out. This isn't working. I don't love you. And I've met someone else. And that was a huge psychological trap for me because I was in shock. But also, I told you, I grew up with such low... little... It was like, and now I'm a failure at this. And now I'm not attractive. I'm not deserving of love. I'm not, you know, the confidence and all these traumas were just really kind of inside of me, kind of bubbling to the surface. At the same time, over this kind of tumultuous path, post-Harvard, Chris attempted suicide once, and it was a terrible experience. I just visited him. He had called, we were talking on the phone three, four times a week. He called me up from the hospital and said... I'm in recovery. I have attempted suicide. I, I'd love you to come visit me. And I need you to help me because I need to get on the right medications. I need to see the right psychiatrist. And I need you to get a bit more involved in my health. And I did. But then as I was going through this process of the divorce and the selling my house, he then took his life, attempted to take his life a second time. And this time was successful. And so I lost.
0: You talked to him the night before.
1: Yeah. Well, I talked to him the night before that he left. He left on. He left basically driving down the road trip path that we had come on the other way. We drove from West Coast to East Coast on the return trip. He drove from East Coast to West Coast. We caught up to him. Yeah, I haven't talked about this before. We caught up to him at a hotel room. We were trying to use the police to track his credit card payment so that we could find him because we thought it was... A, pretty scary situation and we caught up to him at a hotel room in Colorado and his sister was able to get him on the phone and in that particular state even with police and psychologists present you cannot enter someone's hotel room and she was able to talk to him on the phone at the hotel and then he shot himself overnight in the hotel but I talked to him the day before he left and I talked to Rena, his sister. I said, I think I was the last person to talk to him. She's like, actually, I just talked to him last night. And so I was just in a complete disaster. I, I had I'm trying to sell a house, <laughs> which is its own mess. I'm trying to process my divorce paperwork. I'm trying to come to terms with the fact that my wife is interested in another guy, and my best friend is gone. He just disappears. It's just the person I would probably be most talking to about the whole divorce at the same time, and the person I'd be talking to most about losing my friend is my wife, and that was also gone. And so I felt completely untethered. I felt completely searching. There's a lot of tears. There's a lot of stress. I lost a lot of weight. And in the midst of this zone, that's really it's a period that stretches out over a few months. That's when to try to cheer myself up. I start a website. I start a website because what else am I getting? There's news is negative that that everything online is negative. I got no one to talk to. I'm home by myself. I go to Google. I type in how to start a blog. I press. I'm feeling lucky. Light at the time. You remember this? But blogs were what everyone was doing. Fifty thousand blogs were started a day. It was kind of pre, you know, Instagram and Twitter and stuff getting real popular. And so I started a website called 1000awesomethings.com as a way to try to cheer myself up. It was like the way you would sort of reach for something and not know if it was going to work. But I was like, I just want to force myself to write something positive before I go to bed because I can't sleep because I got all the stress in my stomach. And so it sucked. My website sucked. It was the, it was. The number 1,000 post on my blog was called Flower, the strange mutant hybrid child of nature's ugliest vegetables. I mean, <laughs> this, my website sucks, but it was me trying to reach for a vine out of the
0: quicksand. You were seeing a therapist twice a week. Was that an idea that she, she said, hey, Neil, you got to start journaling, you got to start expressing? Was that, is that where that idea came from? Or what preceded you getting online and starting up that website?
1: I had written for a comedy newspaper in college. I remembered the deep joy that I had as a child, writing and reading, especially comedy. And that love I had, that early love of writing comedy and trying to write comedy. So it was a safe place for me. And the therapist actually came from my mom. I felt like a real loser at the time for my mom suggesting I go to therapy. Like I I, I equated therapy. It wasn't in the... A, I wasn't where I am now, but B, I don't think therapy was where it is now. It was equated with, you got problems, you know, you're crazy, you got, you're crazy. You got total problems. And so I went to the therapist and you're supposed to, it was, it was my mom's therapist. So even worse, even more embarrassing <laughs> for me. She's like, you need to see a therapist now. And I'm going to, you should go to the one I got, just Rude. go now. Just, you know, like, I'll give you my appointment kind of thing. And so I go to see the guy and he's like, can you come back tomorrow? you know, it was like, I had a lot of stuff to process a lot. I was trying to process massive amounts of emotional stuff all at once. And I didn't know, I didn't have the tools to be able to do that. So the blog was one tool. The therapy was one tool. Yeah. Looking back, I know that focusing on gratitude is scientifically proven and we can talk about that. I know that journaling is scientifically proven and we can talk about that, but I was just grasping at stuff I was just grasping and stuff, you know. My parents were also like trying to load up my freezer with like healthy homemade food. I wrote about Chris on my blog. I wrote a big essay about my relationship with him. And it turned my little tiny comedic blog about broccoli flower into something that I I posted it. I called it smiling and thinking about good friends who are gone. And I wrote a big essay about him. So I was trying my best with the limited tools I have to process things however I could. And I will, it's pretty obvious looking at it now, I didn't have that much perceived challenge in my life until that point. So when I hit these two huge things at once, I didn't have the equipment. I didn't have the skills. I didn't have the resilience to deal with it.
0: You've mentioned in a previous interview I heard, you said when you were younger, you would quit things a lot. And your mom would be cool with you quitting things a lot. Talk about your sort of mental process and in, in locking into a thousand things and the schedule every day. Like yeah. where did that come from? Did you inherit that in business school or you know working in leadership development at Walmart?
1: Well, or? well so first of all, I started the blog in 10 minutes. Like you you go, mm-hmm. you type in how to start a blog you press i'm feeling lucky the first hit that comes up like is a site i had never heard of at the time called wordpress i clicked that button and it (laughs) said right there on the button click here to start a blog in 10 minutes so i click there it says come up with a name well my mother-in-law my mother-in-law in the relationship that i was in that was ending she always said everything was awesome she said, "Well, that's awesome. That's awesome." I had this word ringing in my head. I was like, "Okay, I never used it myself." I was like, "Okay, awesome." And uh, I don't know, a hundred felt small, and a million felt big. So I just wrote a thousand. I actually did not do the math to realize that that actually would take four straight years of <laughs> writing one every day. Right? I didn't. I was like, "A thousand doesn't sound that big, does it?" You know, everyone's talking millions, billions. Thousand sounds small. Why do I mention that? Because. It wasn't like a thing that I made a commitment to doing for four years, but it's still the hardest project I've ever undertaken, I will say creatively, in my life. Mm-hmm. And many times over those four years, I wanted to quit. I wanted to stop. There was many days I'm like, well, that's the end of that. I got 12 ideas. Like, we're done. But what happened was when you put a little flag above yourself in the world, that old Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. Isn't that far off? When you decide what you want to do, the universe conspires to make it happen. And when I started writing about awesome things, I eventually sent an email after five or 10 posts to people. My mom sent it to my dad. My traffic doubled. I started getting 10 hits. Guess what? When anyone in my life started thinking of something good that happened to them, they sent it to me. And the little blog, which had one comment, started to get three comments and people posted ones so like, Oh, how about the cold side of the pillow? Or have you written about getting called up to the dinner buffet at a wedding? So I was just taking other people's idea and trying to write them out. And when you do that more, the comments get bigger. I remember the first day I got like 20 comments on a post. And then one day I got hundred. And then I wrote this post called Old Dangerous Playground Equipment. I got 500 comments, right? And it made the front page of this website at the time, which was really big, called Fark.com. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. Fark.com, right? And it was like dig.com, right? Like, those are the websites that kind of started the blog, started getting 5,000 hits a day, 10,000 say a day, 50,000 hits a day, like. It started getting bigger and bigger. Like a million blog hits on the side, then 5 million, then 10 million. And I didn't think of it like a project I was necessarily going to commit to for a 1,000 days. But I'm saying... That second law of physics, an object in motion will stay in motion unless acted upon by equal or greater force. It's true. And so the hardest part often is to start these things. And sometimes when they start, the momentum and the motivation and the capability that you think in your own head, that comes after, right? So it accelerated as a practice and it became easier as I was doing it. Not always easy and often not but it became easier than those first clunky attempts on the first day and the second day and the third day. And if you ask me, where did I get into like a publishing rhythm? Yeah. I mean, I guess at Queens university, when I was editor of that campus comedy newspaper, we put out a paper every single week. So I was familiar with the process of getting together on Sunday with a group of people having literally nothing written and not going home till 4 a.m. on Monday morning when the thing was done. And it would come out every day at Wednesday. And it was a comedy mm-hmm. newspaper. We weren't reporting on things. We made it all up. And it was like a 40-page newspaper. <laughs> so we wrote an entire newspaper. It was the number one campus newspaper across the country in terms of ad sales and ad revenue because it was very, very well read. And we put the whole thing together every Sunday, and I just knew that mental philosophy of starting with nothing and then publishing before you go home. So I had that baked in me. I think from four years at Queens.
0: Your most recent book that's about to come out in December, twenty twenty two, our book of awesome. In the yeah. introduction to that book, yeah, you admit that you needed this exercise. So now going back to the original one, yeah, I know for myself. You know, I've been writing this daily dose of inspiration for over six years now. So I I literally see the world in frames of inspirational (laughs) experiences. Was that happening to you? Were you like going out of your house now, living your same life, but now all you're kind of noticing are awesome things to write about, especially when you're getting those 20, 30, 40, 50 comments on your posts?
1: A hundred percent. I was keeping notes in my pocket. It was easier to add to them. And you know what? It's it was years later that I first heard of this thing in your brain called your visual cortex. And it was years later that I heard that there's an area in your brain called area 17. And it was years later that I heard that there's these famous researchers down at the University of Texas called Slatcher and Pennebaker who did all this foundational work on journaling. And they show that when you journal about a positive experience that happens in your daylight, and you know this because you see the world this way through your inspiration, inspiration emails guess what? It lights up area 17 in your visual cortex as if you're doing it again. And your brain does not know the difference between what's happening right in front of your eyes and what's happening in your mind. Meaning that if you write about the cold side of the pillow, it feels to your mind like you are flipping to the cold side of the pillow. And if you read your own journal, if you read your own email, which you do before you send it, and I did before I post it, and I did after, then guess what? You get a doubling, a tripling, a quadrupling effect. And... On top of all that, you are actually carving out the neural pathways in your brain responsible for positive thinking. And this activity and this behavior is so fundamentally important to all of us because our brains naturally go the opposite way. 300,000 years of Homo sapiens evolution on top of 3 million years with the same brains. We're good at looking for problems, man. Our brains are good at looking for problems. That's what they are designed to do. You look for problem, you find problem, you solve problem, and that is still the orientation of our entire society today. When you get the math test back, you look for the one question you got wrong. When you get the blood test back, you look for the high cholesterol. When you look at the reviews in your podcast, I guarantee your brain looks for the one that's one star first. When you go on Amazon, you look for the one-star review first. Our brains are designed to look for problems. However, we happen to live in the most abundant society ever in human history. I'm not saying that stuff happening in the news isn't real. I'm not saying that. But I am saying we do live in the most abundant time ever in human (laughs) civilization. You can press a button, uh, have food on your porch in 20 minutes. You could go anywhere in the world, like feasibly. You could see things. We live like kings lived 100 years ago, but we don't feel that way because our brains are still the same brains. And so, this exercise and this practice that you have with your six year long daily email, and I had for the four years I did the blog and the 11 years I've done since, still writing them down. That's the basis of our book of awesome. It's another 500 of them, okay? Is a vital practice to cultivating a positive mindset. And if you can cultivate the positive mindset, man, everything else opens up. And we can talk about the research on that. But it is the lead domino to productivity, Mm -hmm. to creativity, to social connection, to almost anything you can measure. This comes from Sonia Lubomirsky over at Stanford and the University of California from her wonderful book, The How of Happiness cultivating a positive mindset is the lead domino to almost everything. So you don't necessarily need to listen to this and say, oh, I got to write a daily email like light, or I got to write a daily awesome thing like deal. But there's got to be something. There's got to be something that you do where you look, For positive things every day. You can put it on a pen, on a pen and paper. You could do a two-minute morning journaling practice, which we can talk about. That's another thing I'm a big advocate for. You could write it on your phone when no one sees. But if you do that practice, you're cultivating the mindset that will lead to massive benefits for you.
0: You've become one of the thought leaders in positive thinking practices And I'm curious at what point, and I kind of think I know the answer, but I want to hear your version of this. But at what point did you transition from a leadership development coach who had this little part-time blog thing on the side to an awesome blogger who was moonlighting as a leadership development coach in your mind? Well,
1: well, okay. So I worked at Walmart from 2006 to 2016. I started Mm -hmm. writing a thousandawesomethings.com in 2008. The Book of Awesome, which is the book based on my blog, not to be confused with our Book of Awesome, which is the 10-year-later sequel that i just written, but The Book of Awesome came out in 2010. Like, for eight overlapping years, eight overlapping years, I wrote five books, I gave 200 speeches all on the side of working my full-time job at Walmart. And the reason I did that was a couple-fold. One I just got the worst. I had three contacts in my phone. I was living, now I'm living in a shoebox apartment and down. I got nothing else to do. There's 168 hours in a week. You divide it by three. You get three buckets of 56, right? You sleep eight hours a night. That's eight times seven. That's 56 hours a week. You work a job like I had a very busy, demanding job at Walmart. I went from manager of leadership development to my last job. At the company was director of leadership development. In the middle, I had a four-year development assignment working for our CEO as his project manager. So now, like writing speeches, traveling, you know, doing work for our CEO, and these were big jobs. But I'll say, even though they were big, they weren't more than fifty-six hours a week. They weren't more than fifty-six hours a week. That's still eight hours a day plus sixteen hours on evenings and weekends, right? Well, that still afforded me the time and the ability to spend fifty-six hours doing something else. And what I did when the blog started to take off and I'm starting to get invited to like give, you know, TED Talks or whatever, is I went to the Walmart ethics department, which they had because they're the world's largest company. They got departments about anything. And I talked to the guy and I said, I'm getting invited to like, you know, do speeches and stuff that I'm getting paid for. What's the conflict of interest here? And he said, let me get this straight. You're writing a blog on the side about how to be happy, little positive things. I was like, yeah. I said, uh-huh. He's like, and you are trying to teach other people, you know, through motivational speeches? I said, Yeah. And he said, Are you mentioning in your speech anything confidential about Walmart? I said, No, my speech is not about Walmart. It's the three A's of awesome. That's the name of my TED talk, you know. He's like, Okay. He just double-checked. I was like, No, I mean, he's like, basically, you're great. In fact, He's like, there's people at Walmart all over the place. They're like, I'm a DJ on the weekend. I'm a wedding photographer. I'm a real estate agent. You know, these days, you know, we have words for it now, the side hustle. At the time, I thought I was breaking some law. So I double checked with ethics and they're like, no, what you're doing is good. In fact, do you mind giving a motivational speech to you know, the auditorium here? We aren't going to pay you. You work here. But could you give the talk? So I do stuff like that for Walmart. And I happen to have a wonderfully progressive culture and company that just supported me. They were kind and supportive and they loved, they love the fact that I was doing this stuff on the side. And so I got lucky that way. I'm thinking some organizations, you know, they have a pretty clear policy that you can't do two jobs at once. But in this case, what I would do is I would look at the amount of vacation time I would get from Walmart per year, and it was like three weeks of vacation. And then I would calculate how many, for example, speeches I wanted to do. And I told the speaking bureau I wanted to do 20. Right, And this is a little bit inside baseball, but I know you're interested and maybe some of your listeners are. And then I would say to the speaking bureau, how many of those 20 can you move to evenings and weekends? And they'd say, about half, maybe. I'd say, okay, well, the evenings and weekends, I'm good. What about the other half? They're like, well, that's 10 more speeches you got to travel for. So then I'd go back to the Walmart HR department and I'd fill out a little piece of paper that said annually I would do this. And everybody can do this in every company. People don't realize this. All you do is fill out a piece of paper with your HR department. You say, I request 10 days of unpaid leave per year. Almost every company has this. People don't use it. So I would turn my three weeks of vacation into five, and it would supplement the time I needed to do the extra speeches and so on. So I did both for as long as possible. And now you're probably wondering, how'd you decide what to do? By the way, the motivational speaking and writing all these books job sounds cool and sexy, but don't forget, man, it's got no pension. It's got no benefits. You could fall off the face of the earth in 10 minutes if you aren't showing up on Light Watkins' podcast. You know what I'm saying? So there's a lot more grind in that job. And so I called up Dave Cheese, right, who was the CEO that I worked for at Walmart. And I called him up and I said, Dave, I'm trying to decide what to do. And he said, Neil, you only got to perform two tests, my friend. Number one, the deathbed test when you were deciding between two jobs or a current job and a future job which would you regret not doing more on your deathbed that is the deathbed test and i said okay well you know dave was had moved on to like kind of a mentorship role to me so i was like well I'm, i think i'd probably regret the writing thing more if I didn't do it. You know, I'd written a few books at the time, like, but I, I never leaned in all the way where I was spending my time writing. And you mentioned my pockets. Well, I could not even imagine doing stuff like that because I was, you know, working a full-time job. I was like, I think I'd regret that more. He's okay. The second test is the plan B test, which is you got to conceptualize and visualize and get comfortable with what you would do if you failed. Okay. So he said, okay, so tell me, Neil, If you go be a writer full time and it flops, because the odds are it will, (laughs) you know, just the odds, general odds in life about trying to make it as an artist of any kind is pretty low. So what are you going to do? And I said, well, I guess I'm going to be dusting off that LinkedIn profile, you know, and I'll be knocking on the door of Walmart and any other company. And he said, okay, could you get your mind around being comfortable with that? I said, Yeah, I I think so. I've got 10 years of work experience here. I've got the background here. He's like, okay, I think you already know what you want to do then. You did the two tests. And I will, I say that because those two tests are valuable tools for anybody who are considering between a current option or a future option or two different options, the deathbed test and the plan B test. And if you can answer those two questions in your mind, it'll help you make the decision. So at that point, so 200 speeches, five books in 2016, I then went to become what I do now, and I say, what I say that I do is I say, I think, write, and speak about intentional living, right? I've subsequently written books about happiness called The Happiness Equation, a book about resilience called You Are Awesome, this new book, which I feel is centered around community, which is called Our Book of Awesome. Yeah, it's a litany of awesome things, but you read the book, you know, it's like, there's voices that appear, there's comments that fly in, There's I'm trying to do some creative stuff in the book. And to be honest with you, now that I look back, Man, I think I was too risk averse. I think I was too risk averse. I had the cultural heritage of being a doctor. And if not, definitely be a lawyer or an engineer. And if not, definitely have a job, <laughs> you know, like have a place you go with the salary you get, you know, have, have a benefits plan. Man. So I look back and I think, well, if I had left a couple of years earlier, maybe then I could have started that podcast or done that training, course? who knows? But I did it the way that was meant to happen for me. And that's the thought process and the process that I went through to do it.
0: Look, I've written books before, published books with publishers, you're one of those rare authors that has a runaway bestseller, like a legitimate New York. Everyone says i am been bestseller. I say that about all my books, best-selling books. I'm not a New York Times bestseller. You became a New York Times bestseller. And I know that when you're going through the publishing process, half of your proposal is your marketing plan. <laughs> Did you have some yeah. special marketing plan to become a New York Times bestseller? Like, What were the mechanics yeah. of that?
1: I'm happy to go into this in detail. It's interesting, though, because I will say it's a really, really, really big percentage being luck, okay? So let me tell you about luck. I won an award from the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences for best blog in 2010. And when I came home, there was 10 literary agents in my inbox eager to sign a book deal. Well, I said to a blogger friend of mine named Christian Lander, who ran a blog called Stuff by People, like, hey, I just got this email from this guy named Bird. What should I do? And he's like, you did? Hold on a second. And then like 10 minutes later, I get an email from his agent at WME. Well, right away, that's a lucky break because what now you have happening is a bunch of agents trying to go for you. That already is a rare situation. I have this lucky thing where it's fortuitous on a war and then agents hear that other agents are going. They're all interested in in it now because the other agents interested in it, right? Well, then when you've got multiple agents interested in it, The agent gets very excited. Could you do a book proposal? Well, my book proposal was two seconds, man. File, print. You know, I already had the blog. I just had to pick the 10 best ones. There you go. That was the book proposal. Well, she sent it around to five publishers, or maybe more, but five publishers bid on it. And so right away, you have another lucky thing where if you have more than one publisher interested in it, they all try to outbid each other. This is not a healthy practice. I don't think it's a smart practice. I don't think it's a logical practice. But publishers want to win books that are hard to win. You heard about Obama getting $43 for his memoir. Does that make any sense? See, you know how much a book gets paid? It makes no sense, man. There's no way they're going to get that much back in royalties ever. Right. Not that many people read like it's just not going to add up. Right. But when you get into a bidding war, then what you enter into is a lot of publishers competing for each other. Here's the bidding war. Do you want me to go into like numbers and stuff?
0: No, you'd have to go into that much detail.
1: OK, well, well, I'll, I'll, here's what I'll say. This publisher had this bid at this price, then another one at this price, then another one at this price and then another one at this price. And then Penguin had a house bed for a number that was substantially higher than all the other numbers okay like Mm -hmm. more than double kind of thing and so i said well what do you suggest and she's like well i suggest the biggest number (laughs) and i said well what do you mean a house bed she said that means there's two imprints within the house that both want the book so i talked to both of them the first one was a publisher i just won't say the names but the first one was an imprint that was famous for doing blogs to books they had done the Loll cats book they had done this chuck norris book I got on the phone, they were on time, they were very polite, they were very friendly, they said, just give us your best blog post, the book will be out in the trade paperback in the kind of a newsprint, it'll be out in three months. Well, as a blogger who has a full-time job light, like, that was music to my ears, I don't gotta do any work. The second imprint was a woman who had had her own imprint within Penguin. She had published zero books, she had just signed one, and I would be the second one. She was late to the call, She had a very specific vision to the book. She's like, I can't be putting in these things that you got written, like blowing your nose in the shower, farting after the guest leave. She's like, I'm not writing that stuff. (laughs) She's like, you got to write like half of the stuff's got to be new. The uh, the market is like women who are like looking for a gift. You know, it's a hard cover. It's not a paperback. It's going to take you a year to do what I want. And I was like, whoa that's a really captivating vision for someone who is a brand new kind of publisher. What's your first book call? She's like, I just signed a, a book with another first time author warning sign named Catherine Stockett. It's a book called the help. You'd be my second. Her name was Amy Einhorn and her vision captivated me so much that I called my agent. I said, I want to go with her. And she said, you want to go with her, but the other guys, they know what they're, they've already done. All the, I said, but the vision was so on hardcover. She had this vision for it. It was not going to be all the juvenile stuff I was writing. So I went with her. Well, you know what? She made the book because she got so excited about it. She had such a clear vision for it that she got the salespeople excited for it. So they get Walmart excited for it and Target excited for it and Costco excited for it. And those people then buy more copies of it. And suddenly you got the book everywhere. When you got the book everywhere with a high advance, guess what they do? Like, They push you on the Today Show because they can't have a failure now, right? And so what I'm saying is I had the benefit of all these tailwinds coming after me. I'll tell you, Mm. 10 years later, it's the opposite. (laughs) You know, it ain't (laughs) like that anymore, right? But what I'm saying, what I'm saying back in the day, it was like being on the Today Show alone makes your book a New York Times bestseller. When Meredith Vieira flashes the image of the book on screen to 40 million Americans in the morning. It wasn't because of me, man. I was just someone going through the riptide. Now, thing about books in general, and you know this, is they got legs. If people like the book, it's word of mouth, and nothing replaces word of mouth. A few key influencers like the book. In Canada, there's a woman named Heather Reisman. She picked the book for a Heather's Pick. That means all the Canadian bookstore chains started carrying the book, and then it took off, and then the word of mouth got bigger. They printed 6,000 copies of the Book of Awesome in Canada, and it sold out in one day. And so you started getting stories like, I drove to 12 bookstores and finally got a copy. Well, you know, the lineup outside the nightclub is what sells the nightclub, right? So it suddenly became this hard-to-get book. So I was the beneficiary. I, I was going through this thing because of all that and because I had written the blog. And this is another good takeaway for people listening is the community was created first right? I had written a blog every single day for two years straight. So when the day I announced I got a book, that's two years worth of readers who had to click a button to buy it. So the book debuted at number two on the bestseller list. The number one book was called Oprah by Kitty Kelly. And then it was number one the next week. And it stayed there for like a hundred weeks, like a hundred weeks in a row. It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. To the point where then I, they asked me rush for a second book, the book of even more awesome that came out a year later, and that was then they were number one and two together. For like so you didn't have
0: a six. big problem getting a date when your book was number one on the New York Times bestseller list for hundreds of weeks, in a row, did you?
1: Oh well, it's funny because my confidence is still pretty weird. Like I, I was like. I was dating and dating and dating. I started going on online dating sites. Okay, that took me a while to get comfortable with that idea. This was pre-Tinder and stuff. So I was I was on like, okay, Cupid, right? And then I went on a lot of first dates. And I'm in my mid-40s now. And you can feel my energy in this conversation. Well, imagine, just wheel this back 15 years, man. My energy was like sharp and flying all over the place. I don't think I was a pleasant person to have a first date with. No one called me back. Let me put it to you that way. Okay. So I had like a year of dating and just like constantly ghosted. I was not sending out (laughs) the right messages to the world. Okay. Like I was, it was not working out. No one was interested in date number two with this guy. So, I mean, two years of that after my divorce, then I finally met someone who I liked, who had liked me. Her name was Leslie. She's a teacher at a Toronto Public School Board. We go on another date and another date and another date. And I had, created two rules for myself after first marriage imploded. Number one, you must date for one full year before you live together. And number two, you must live together for one full year before you consider marriage. Those might seem like short time frames for most people, but you got to remember, I proposed to my first wife after a few months, okay? So, mm. these rules were like, a way to stop this giddy little guy from going, getting too excited too quickly. And so after a year of dating, we moved in together and important note, we found a place together. It's not, I moved into her place or she moved into mm-hmm. my place. You got to find the place together. You got to go through the looking process, the decorating process. The, that is vital. That is vital. Then after a year of living together, I asked her to marry me. And I don't want to flash forward too much in the story, but Leslie and I have now been happily married for eight years and we have a bunch of little kids and it's been a wonderful and joyous and lucky and fortuitous series of events since.
0: Thank God uh, my
1: first wife left me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Talk about how you got the inspiration for the happiness equation. Speaking Mm -hmm. of your marriage.
1: Good catch. Okay. So Leslie and I, when we got married, she had a vision. I'm a big fan, as you can tell, of like following up. Other people have a very clear vision with Amy Einhorn, my editor. I was like, she's got a vision for the book of awesome. Like, let's go with her vision. But Leslie had a vision for our wedding. She knew where she wanted to get married since she was 16 years old. There's a place in Toronto, east of Toronto, called the Scarborough Bluffs. It's just the part of Lake Ontario, which kind of just feels like you're on the edge of the ocean. She always knew where she wanted to get married. And she had this vision for it. So I was like, okay, you take it away, you know? And she really planned the heck out of that wedding. And I said, hold on. The exchange is, I'm going to plan the honeymoon. And you're not going to know where we're going until we get on the plane. It's going to be a total surprise. And for Leslie, who has organization and scheduling tendencies like you and I both do, she was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release the honeymoon to you. Like it was kind of a fun thing in our relationship. So, I mean, we had fun with it. The three weeks leading up to our wedding, I left like a different photo on our bed every night of like things that we might see or do. And we ended up going to Southeast Asia. I'd never been before. She'd never been before. We haven't been since. It was like, you know, a total bucket list honeymoon. You got to go somewhere you've never been. That's, that, was I was, that was my philosophy. Well, everything was great on the honeymoon until the flight home when she was sick, really sick. And it's pretty far from Southeast Asia to Canada. So we had a layover in Malaysia, Kuala Lumpur. And it was a six-hour layover. And she's like, I need to find a pharmacy and I was like what do you mean she's like I need to find a pharmacy in the layover in Malaysia I was like in the airport she's like in the airport or we got to go into the city whatever I need to find a pharmacy so we found a pharmacy in the airport and she asked me to find her a place to lie down so I found a place to lie down to like you know buy one of these passes to get into like you know some room that she could lie down for a bit and we get on the plane. I was like, first of all, are you sure you're up for going? Because you seem really, really sick. He's like, I'm up for going. I'm up for going. We go on the plane. We take off. She goes to the tiny airplane bathroom at the front of the airplane. So we're you know, we're above the clouds here. She comes back <laughs> to our seats and she says, I'm pregnant. Like she bought the pregnancy test at the Kuala Lumpur Airport Pharmacy. She did the pregnancy test in the tiny airplane bathroom at the front of the airplane. We found out she's having a baby on her honeymoon. Well, mm-hmm. not to ruin this surprise here, but and maybe this is TMI, but we got married July twelfth. The baby was born April 12th. I'm talking nine months to the day from our wedding. Okay. So basically conception was our wedding night, basically, if you do the math, essentially. And I used that wild event as fuel. To try to take the past few years of my life after the book of awesome and its sequels had come out and I had started to become this speaker going around the world and talking to people about happiness and starting, of course, to research and read my own stuff about happiness. I was like, this is the thing I need. I wrote like for the next nine months, a 300 page letter to my unborn son on how to live a happy life. You've probably heard the writing advice to pretend that you're writing to somebody, you know, write in an email because it somehow clarifies you're writing for yourself. Well, that was a wonderful North Star for me because I was thinking, I had many thoughts, one of which was, I don't know what this says about my brain, but I was like, what if I die? Like, what if I die before the child's like 12 Anytime in the next 12 years, I could die. And if I die before I'm 12, there'll be no chance for me to share anything of what I've learned or what I know or what I think I know. And so that was the fuel I used inside of me. I wrote that 300-page letter, and that became the happiness equation. And it's funny because when that book came out, I said to the publisher, you know, should we say that this is kind of a letter to my kid? And they're like, no, no, you know, we shouldn't say that. But I, I hid... <laughs> I hid on page, you know, the copyright page that no one ever reads. Like, here it is. I hid this little thing to my baby. And I didn't know if it was, you know, a boy or girl or whatever. To my baby, I wanted Mm -hmm. you to have this in case I didn't get a chance to tell you. Love, dad.
0: Mm -hmm. So, it was just
1: a way for me to put in a little note to myself. Now, that was also a pretty crazy thing to do. It's interesting to talk about because I was known at that time as the quote-unquote awesome guy. Mm -hmm. I had written three books in this world of awesome book of awesome book of even more awesome book of holiday awesome i had a journal of awesome i had a page a day you know those page a day calendars i had written five of them so like another thousand awesome things right like thousands more the rip off one a day i had written those for five straight years i had done all this stuff and now here i am talking about happiness. who's this guy kind of like stay in your lane, man, right? Like it was a different idea to get into the world of positive psychology, which has kingpins in it who are typically Professor Daniel Gilbert, right? From Harvard, uh, writing about stumbling on happiness, Professor Sonia Lobomirski, but I'm just some dude. I'm just some guy. (laughs) I'm just someone, right? But the thing that I guess I had, which I think is partly why the book has done pretty well, is that I had that very casual and colloquial and comedy background. And it was written for a child, right? And so it was not, I didn't have two by two matrices. I had scribbles that I actually personally scribbled. I actually drew. So throughout the whole book, there's all these like little back of the napkin, little drawings and stuff like that. So there's, there's a vibe in that book that almost feels like it's a book about happiness for a child. So a different target market.
0: (laughs) It also became a bestseller. So was that just off of the heels of your awesome work or do you attribute that to something else?
1: Well, two things happened when the happiness equation came out, which was in 2016. Number one is, let me give you an anecdote to describe this. When I interviewed David Sedaris for my podcast... So Davis Sedaris, mm-hmm. for those that don't know, maybe the world's most preeminent comedy writer, writes autobiographical comedy essays all the time, uh, Naked, Me Talk Pretty One Day, et cetera, et cetera. He's got a great
0: masterclass on that platform as well. master Oh,
1: right. Right. And he lectures, you know, every single year around the whole world. I mean, this is maybe the biggest person I've ever interviewed on my podcast. Well, when I got into the back of his limo to interview him, he left a little Tiffany's box on the front thing and his publicist was sitting there and he said, oh, that's for you. I just wanted to say thank you so much for the last couple days in Toronto. And she's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. At the end of my interview with him in the back of his limo <laughs> for my podcast, he's like, Neil, what was your what's your address? And he wrote down my address. And like, I'm not kidding, man. A week later, I got a handwritten letter from him in the mail. Hmm. Why do I tell you that story? It's because he makes a point. Wherever he goes through the media, he does the interviews he's doing to recognize that it's a gift to him and his work.
0: He's mm. very
1: conscious of that, just like you having me in your pocket is a gift to me and my work. Well, I take that very seriously. And you remember that after you're on my podcast, I ask you for your address and you live out of a backpack. So I didn't get one, but I usually try to send people a first edition or a signed copy of one of the three formative books, right? Mm. And I try my best through the whole Book of Awesome journey to just be kind and thankful and grateful to all those media people who are just normal human beings like you and me. And when the happiness equation came out, yeah, sure, they'll have Neil back because it's like we kind of we would had enough time interacting with the Book of Awesome. So I think I got lucky that way. And with the happiness equation, it's just like I got a lot of press coverage because I'd done a lot of press and had known people. So I was able to reach out and say, hey, do you want to have me back on the breakfast TV show or whatever it was? And they'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And then I'd get there and they're like, what are you going to talk about? And I was like, oh, the happiness equation. And they're like, well, you're not just going to give us like 10 awesome things again like what, before we go to commercial? It's like I'm trying something new, you know? And so the book kind of did that way. But look, I'd be lying if I said I really knew all the reasons. It certainly is probably beyond me. And now I will say today, as the book industry continues to change and fragment, look, here I am on podcasts, right? And doing like Instagram lives with influencers. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like the world's changed again. 70% of the books bought in the United States are bought through one company. It's not like what it was where you go around. I'll tell you in my first few books, I went on book tours. I got on planes. man, <laughs> and I, I stood up in bookstores with 40 or 50 people around me. And those were the people in that community who were the nodes. They were the book clubbers. They were the ones that told other people about the books. And if you gave them your book and you signed your book with them and they liked it, they'd pass around. Well, now I feel totally out of my element in this digital world. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. I feel like you got to be on book Talk. <laughs> you know. I don't even have a TikTok account. So I'm A, not sure about how it's going to work for this book. With our book of awesome, I don't really know. And B, I don't feel confident that I know what I'm doing anymore. And certainly going back on TV shows and stuff, I hopefully will do that. But less people, less people watch TV now. Less people watch breakfast shows. Less people listen to the radio. Less people listen... So our channels are massively fragmenting. And if you can talk to lots of people in lots of places and you let your book sail, you hope for the best and it's never as good as you hope and it's never as bad as you fear.
0: So you have some pretty interesting habits, let's put it like that, <laughs> between you and your wife and in your household. You're in a house of seven now, and you you actually have described yourself as being lazy, but you get a lot done because of the systems and structures you have in place. Can you just talk a little bit about what that looks like?
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, and the seven, by the way, includes like the fact that we with little kids running around are, are kind of always in a babysitter. Although I will say the seventh person does not live with us. It's just like we're mm-hmm. always having a babysitter here. I've got four little boys under eight years old and we're done before you ask. We're, we're, we're finished. We're, we're, that's it. We're very, very grateful and very, very grateful for our wonderful kids. Yeah. I think of myself as lazy. I E you know, it's that old adage, which is a 2000 year old phrase that has become repopularized now, which is you do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. And so it's a lot easier not to have a TV and to put a bookshelf at your front door once than it is to every single day walk by the TV and tell yourself to read a book. That's why they say, you know, don't go grocery shopping when you're hungry, right? (laughs) Because you're going to buy all the junk food. Like go grocery shopping when you're in your best self. When you're in your best self, that's when you can carve out very intentional processes and practices in your life. And if you were to ask me, okay, Neil, what are some of the practices you have? I'm very happy to go through some of them. Number one, this is a new one for me. I keep 10 rocks on my dresser at all times. I think of each rock representing one decade of my life. I believe, I hope I will live to the age of 106. I have my wife's 100-year-old birthday party planned for a specific date when I will be 106 years old. So I think of myself as living 10 decades. Of course, I could be hit by a bus tomorrow, but I'm going to hold on to that vision to hope that it happens. Why do I keep those rocks on my dresser? Because I move four rocks forward, that's the number of rocks I've lived, and six rocks back, that's the number of rocks I have left to live. Each one represents a decade. No matter what problems ail me during the day, when I glance at that little rock clock at night, it calms me down. Nothing's that stressful in the face of a longer time horizon. You've heard about larger timescale projects that people like Jeff Bezos are doing. They're slamming 10,000-year clocks and sides of mountains. Well, this is a simple way to just sort of relieve stress before bed. I also have another rule. There are no cell phone chargers anywhere upstairs in my house. They're only in the basement, in the furnace room. I'm telling you, my cell phone lives in my basement, in the furnace room, the dark, dank room that has no, you know, it's like pink stuff coming out of the walls. Why? Because I will not expose my brain to bright screens before I go to bed or when I wake up in the morning. There's research around both of those things. I can start to quote the research. If you look at a bright screen within an hour of bedtime, you don't produce as much melatonin overnight. You don't get as deep a restful sleep. It's huge. So just leaving your chargers in a specific location helps because the charger has to live where you don't want to be. So then you have the extra 20 steps and you don't send the email you're going to regret at night. So then what do I do in the morning? When most people are checking their phones, A I have an alarm clock. I highly recommend people buy an alarm clock. It sounds like dumb advice now, but that prevents you from needing your phone beside you, okay? And I also recommend a landline. People laugh when I say that, but every month I pay the $20 to the telecommunications company. I'm paying for the permission not to have the cell phone in my bedroom. And I only give that landline number to like, my mom, my sister, the one person that helped, just any emergency contact. So I know I can rest easily knowing that I'll be reached in case of emergency. When I wake up in the morning, what's beside my bed? It's the yellow journal I have right here beside me called two minute mornings. All I do every single morning is I write down, I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on, Right. I will let go of, and I can go into the science in each of these three statements, but for now, you can kind of believe me, you get rid of an anxiety that you wake up with, I will let go of comparing myself to Tim Ferriss, right? Whatever it is on a given day, <laughs> I am grateful for the fact that I get to connect with a friend in Mexico City today. I'm grateful for the hot sauce I got last night, whatever it is. You write down a couple of gratitudes. We talked about this already. We know the research, Emmons and McCullough. If you write down 10 gratitudes a week, you're not just happier over a 10-week period, but you're also physically healthier, okay? you The cheapest workout you can do is writing down gratitudes. And then lastly, I will focus on, we live in an era of decision fatigue. If you do not write one thing you will do each morning, you won't get it done. <laughs> and it'll sit subconsciously in your brain. So that two-minute morning practice is a vital system for me, Light, because it basically primes my brain for positivity all day. We know the research. That means I'm 31% more productive, got 37% higher sales, 300% more creativity. We can go on and on and on. And I'm only taking two minutes to do it. The average person's awake for 1,000 minutes a day. So I'm taking a 0.01% time investment to make that whole other 998 minutes
0: better. You also have your wife confiscate your phone for 48 hours over the weekend, which which some people may look at that's very extreme. How long has that been happening?
1: Honestly, I need to do it a bit more, but what I do do is on a Friday, I give my phone to my wife and I say, hide this from me and don't give it back to me until Sunday. Mm-hmm. So even if I ask, even if I beg, even if I plead, well, listen, Light, we all got laptops, right? So if I really want to do something, I can open up the thing and fire up the, the laptop, but it just prevents me from having a compulsively checking thing. And I will also add on my phone, I have no social media apps. I have no news media apps. I have no email apps. I don't mm. even have email app on my phone because guess what? You can go open Safari, you can type in gmail.com into the browser, Gmail will send you 10 alerts telling you you're doing it wrong, download the app, download this, download that. You have to say no, you have to enter your password, super annoying. You have to read it on a browser, super annoying. But if you need it, you got it, but you make it friction full to get to it. And again, (laughs) systems beat goals. So rather than saying, oh, I'm not going to compulsively check social media and email, well, I just don't have the apps. I'd have to download the app, get my two-factor authentication password emailed to me, check my email in my browser, then memorize it. and It's too annoying. So I don't do it unless I really, really, really have to want to or need to, right? So just creating those extra steps prevents me from doing behaviors that I don't really want to do. People say, oh, Neil, how do you do this three books podcast? You must be reading so many books, right? I had you on. Well, of course, I'm reading how to win friends and influence people before we chat, right? I'm I'm reading the books in advance. I end up reading 100 books a year these days. Why? It's because of I'm deleting all this other stuff from my brain. If you don't consume news media and social media and you have a bookshelf at your front door and you don't have a TV, well, what else are you going to do? <laughs> like It's like, now you don't have that much other things to choose from. So I'm just really careful about what I ingest, not just through my mouth, but through my brain. And what is a failure budget? When I first moved downtown after my divorce, I started getting invited to lots of stuff that I had no experience in, like a theater club or a concert to some salsa thing. I just instinctively, my answer to all of that was always no. I don't know how to do that. I've never been part of that. I feel uncomfortable in that situation. I want, but when you're lonely and living in a tiny bachelor apartment, for a long period of time, with just your job and your blog to occupy yourself, man, it really makes a difference starting to say yes to some of that stuff. And I noticed, like, that whatever I would say yes to, regardless of what happened, it was a net positive experience for me. Because the amount of learning from a social perspective, from even a knowledge perspective, was huge. It was Your learning curve is the steepest when you know the least, right? Your first three swings of the tennis ball, one's going in the net, one's going over the fence, the third one's going in the box. You'll never have a steeper learning curve than those first three hits. Same when you're learning guitar, same when you're learning anything. So I made a rule for myself, which is that I want to create a failure budget in my life. And the way I think about it is if you make five-figure salary, make a rule like anything that you spend two figures on, you don't think about It's a failure budget number. If you make a six-figure salary, make it three figures. Make it some thousand-point place over on the decimal side. So if you're making a six-figure salary and you're listening to this, I'm arguing that you should therefore think that almost any three-figure opportunity that comes your way, you consider in your mental failure budget. Ah, cooking class on Spanish food. A jazz concert on the other side of town with someone you don't know very well, a camping trip on a bus to some campsite that costs $150 or whatever, you just automatically do it and you don't think about it because it passes your digit test. Okay. You make four figures, make it one figure. You make, you're a tech billionaire. Well, anything 10 grand or less you do, <laughs> whatever, right? You just come up with a system that you don't got to think about it, but it's a, what, you call, what I call a failure budget to just constantly get you try new things.
0: Last question for you. How are you defining success for yourself today? Like what does success look like for Neil in 2022? Success for
1: Neil in 2022 is being able to eat lunch with my wife during the week. Mm. Because I travel sometimes to give speeches, it's not always possible. But when I have lunch with my wife at lunch during the week, right, which I did today, I think to myself, this is it. This is it. This is what I was playing for the whole time.
0: Beautiful, man. Brother, I want to acknowledge you for being so transparent and for getting into all of those details that maybe you don't talk about a whole lot on these kinds of platforms and just for all the things you've done and shared with the world. I mean, that's literally and ironically awesome (laughs) just to witness that, to have a archive of all of these little things for yourself, for your kids, for generations that haven't even been born yet. And then I get to actually talk to you and ask you questions. You and I met was 2017 or something like that.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: In Williamsburg, Brooklyn
1: at the shy movement.
0: Yeah. So it's been a, I don't see you enough. I think that's the only time I've ever seen you in person and we need to fix that some way, somehow. So I know you're always inviting me to come to Canada, but hopefully we'll be able to connect at some point sooner rather than later and spend some real quality time together. So I just want to thank you so much for for coming on and agreeing to be my guest on my little podcast here.
1: You beam exude positive vibes. You are a joy to be around. You fill me up when I hang out with you and I talk to you. (laughs) Thank you for the gift of this conversation. And thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Neil. His newest book, Our Book of Awesome, is now available everywhere books are sold. And also make sure to subscribe to that excellent podcast of his three books. Neil is also on social media at Neil Pasrica. So that's N-E-I-L. P-A-S-R-I-C-H-A. So definitely follow him there for more inspiration. And of course, I'll drop links to everything else that Neil and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. If this is your first time listening to my podcast, we've got an incredible archive of interviews with other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose. People like Young Pueblo, the internet poet sensation, Ava DuVernay, the director, Ed Milet, the motivational speaker, and many more. You could even search through the past episodes by subject matter in case you only want to hear episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or who've overcome financial struggles or who've navigated health challenges. You can get all of that at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on YouTube. If you ever want to put a face to a story, just go to YouTube and search Light Watkins podcast and you'll see the entire playlist. And if you didn't already know, I post the raw unedited version of every podcast episode in my Happiness Insider's online community. So if you're the type who likes hearing all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning of the episodes, then you can listen to that by joining my online community, which is at the happinessinsiders.com. Not only are you going to have access to the unedited version of the podcast, but you'll also have access to my 108-Day Meditation Challenge, which has an 80% completion rate, along with other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. And then finally, to help me bring you the best guests possible, it would really go a long way if you could take 10 seconds to rate my podcast. All you do is glance down at your device, click on the name of the podcast, and scroll down past the seven or eight previous episodes, and you'll see a space with five blank stars. And if you liked this conversation and other conversations on the podcast, then tap the star on the far right, and you've left a five-star rating. And if you feel inspired to go the extra mile, please leave a review with maybe the one or two episodes that you recommend a new listener should consider starting with. As an introduction to this podcast And it could be the episode that had the biggest impact On you personally So thank you very much for that And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week With another story about someone just like me And you taking a leap of faith In the direction of their purpose And until then, keep trusting your intuition Keep following your heart Keep taking those leaps of faith And if no one's told you recently That they believe in you I believe in you Thank you and have a great day If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.